Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Thursday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into this uh, very rich topic of theology of the body. We have been busy now reflecting into this topic for a good five, six months and doing it in different phases. Our second phase is treating the work, uh, Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies, a work that has us looking at Benedict XVI. Uh, encyclical, God is Love, because in the first half of that encyclical, he gets into the relationship between eros and agape, huh? a human erotic fleshy love, as we'll talk about it today, and of course, that divine sacrificial cross-like love. Okay, so very important to begin to see uh, more definitively how eros and agape are called to form and inform one another. If there's anything that we have lost our sense of today, it is the unique relationship uh, between the two. As I talked about it last week, while they are different, huh, eros and agape, we are to see these two as a unity and distinction that, again, one forms and informs the other. So with that, if you have your books out there, you can uh, go ahead and turn to uh, page 93. Uh, we are in the chapter... Uh, God's Eros, and maybe we can offer up a, a bit of a review, uh, because I do believe that that excerpt, uh, excerpt 35, is very important for just not where we're going uh, today, but really just understanding theology, the body as a whole. And uh, excerpt 35 reads as follows. Now, this is uh, actually page 91, uh, again, for purposes of review. Benedict says this, the divine power that Aristotle at the height of Greek philosophy sought to grasp, does not love. It is solely the object of love. The one God in whom Israel believes, on the other hand, Benedict says, loves with a personal love, and his love may certainly be called eros, yet, yet it is also totally agape. And, and as we talked about last week with Christopher West, you know, philosophy can know that God exists. It can even discern certain things about the divine power at the source of existence. Okay, this is what rests at the heart of philosophy in many ways. But can we conclude without the aid of God's self-revelation, that is to say, without biblical faith, that God loves? Hmm? Aristotle and the likes of Aristotle could only conclude that the divine majesty is to be loved. He did not discern, nor did uh, the other classics discern that the divine power not only loves, but is love. Remember how we've talked about it uh, before. God is not some abstract solitude. He's not reduced to the philosophical realm. But in the incarnation, he reveals uh, the deeper meaning of faith, that faith is first and foremost about the encounter, encounter with the incarnation of love, because he is love. Love given, love received, love shared. We always go to the Trinity because it is in the Trinity that we discover God is love. First John 4, 16, huh? 
God is love. Very important. Now, as we speak to it within the context of Revelation, you know, there is a provocative claim that we make as Christians, huh? That God reveals His divine love through a human heart, the sacred heart of Jesus, the fleshy heart of Jesus, okay? Uh, The Christ, the God-man. In other words, what we are made to see is this, God reveals divine love through human love. And we can say, as Christopher West does, it is only from within the logic of the Incarnation that Benedict can declare that God's love may certainly be called Eros. Yet, and this is the wonder and the beauty of theology, the body, and Eros and Agape, while it is called Eros because Eros is that human, erotic, fleshy love, it is also totally Agape because this is what shines forth on the cross, this this sacrificial love. So, for you and I, my friends, (laughs) this marks the path of sanctification. Eros, through a progressive growth in holiness, must come more and more to express agape. This is our path of sanctification. You know, I didn't get to it last week, and I want to touch upon it now before we get to the next excerpt. You know, it's interesting, if you go into the Old Testament, specifically 2 Samuel 6, verses 16 to 23, there's something uh, very interesting that happens. Uh, We have a wonderful example of Eros, uh, not only in the Song of Songs, as as we touched upon last week and we'll get into more uh, this evening, but also in the psalmist's repeated shouts of joy and in David's wild dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, huh? Now, I have talked about this before as it relates to how uh, David dancing around the Ark of the Covenant prefigured John the Baptist, and, and when he was in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, when he was leaping and dancing in the womb before the Ark of the New Covenant, right? Uh, our Lord in the womb of Mary. Well, what's interesting about this passage is the king, that is King David, in fact, had so abandoned himself to Eros, to this wild dancing before the ark, that he actually scandalized Saul's daughter. (laughs) But of course, you and I both know there was no need for scandal because this was in Eros delighting in the Lord, in Eros infused with gape, okay? Remember how we've talked about it before as it relates to joy. Joy is synonymous with grace. In fact, they come from the same Greek word. So, uh, when we receive God's grace, when we, when we receive His essence, its fruit, and as some have said, its first fruit is what? Joy. This bursting forth, this dancing forth. Uh, this is the enthusiasm for God. Mindful that the word enthusiasm in the Greek entheos means to bear God within. We are enthusiastic for Jesus Christ, We glow with fervor when we have received God's grace, when we have received God's essence, and ultimately a reception that leads to a delight, a joy. Uh, So while while we see uh, that it scandalized Saul's daughter, what we are made to see, when eros, that human fleshy incarnate love, is infused with uh, agape, it is truly a delight, and that this is what rests at the heart of theology of the body. Okay, so here we are, six, seven minutes later, (laughs) getting to excerpt 36 
on page 93 for those of you who have it here. Uh, this is Benedict the 16th. The prophets, particularly Hosea and Ezekiel, described God's passion for his people using boldly erotic images. Okay, this is so essential, my friends, to understanding the importance of eros, especially today uh, when Satan seeks to hijack the meaning of, of human and erotic love and to remove God from the picture. Um, so what can we say of Hosea and Ezekiel? Well, first, Hosea, you know, the, so the story of Hosea taking a prostitute for a wife at the Lord's command, I know it is well known. What do we find? In this marriage, we discover an image, okay, of God's love for us, his unfaithful spouse. This is what rests really at the heart of the story of Hosea. God speaking through the prophet of his eros agape love for this unfaithful bride. So if you were to go to, let's see here, Hosea 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 20, what do we read here? Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will espouse you forever." I will espouse you in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love. Steadfast love in the Hebrew, by, by the way, my friends, is hased, this blood bond of love, this covenant love, this, this love that is a faithful love, okay? All right, so as it goes on, I, I will espouse you in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will espouse you in faithfulness, and you shall know uh, the Lord. Okay, so betrothed love is the proper expression of eros, huh? Yet since this betrothal expresses God's love for his people, what then must we conclude? That this eros is, as Benedict writes, totally and at once agape. There's never a time where in sacred scripture when God reveals human love, it is never without divine love, because this is what properly belongs to God's essence, right? So what the Christian revelation tells us is eros anywhere and everywhere must be infused with agape. Again, that divine sacrificial love. It is a love that yearns for intimacy with the other and rejoices in that other's beauty. Uh, we can turn to Isaiah 62, 5. You know, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Uh, Isaiah 62, 5. Hear that again. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Amen. Amen. Again, that word rejoice is grace, okay, in the Greek. Grace, joy. Uh, this is why in that angelic salutation from the angel Gabriel to Mary, uh, rejoice, O highly favored one, the Greek kekari tomene, its root, kari, is, is grace. Okay, uh, so rejoice and grace, uh, they belong to each other. Okay, how about the prophet Ezekiel? The imagery found in uh, the prophet Ezekiel is even more explicit. If you were to go to Ezekiel 16, what do we read there? Verses 7 to 8. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full maidenhood. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, behold, you were at the age for love. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. 
I am yours and you are mine. This is the language of the covenant. And man, is it explicit there in the prophet Ezekiel. Now, the internal difficulty we often encounter in allowing this erotic imagery to speak to us of God's holy love stems from, in many ways, and this is what Christopher West says, might be called a pornographic interference. You know, we have been conditioned by our pornographic culture, what I simply call a pornoculture, to think of the body and sexuality in a, in a radically distorted way, huh? And when this distorted vision of the body appears as the norm, well, what happens? I mean, simply put, it becomes increasingly difficult to reclaim and better understand the pure meaning of the body, uh, sexuality, and the aforementioned erotic love. So when we seek to do so, that is, reclaim this, we are often overwhelmed by this interference, by this pornographic interference, uh, like a static snow on a TV screen, Christopher West says. Um, you know, you, you try to make out the image, but the interference distorts the picture. And remember what I have said before as it relates to uh, what pornography means. You know, the Catechism speaks to it this way in 2354. Pornography consists in the removing real or simulated acts from the intimacy of partners in order to display them to third parties, okay? The word itself, which I find most striking when you break down the Greek compound, pornographine, literally translates as the writing of harlots, okay? So the Greek compound conveys pornography as obscene writing or an art that has no merit. So <laughs> when our bodies are used for nothing more than acts of harlotry, acts that are separated from uh, their intended purpose to bring about Oh, that great phrase from uh, Janet Smith, babies and bonding, huh? They have no merit, obviously. In pornography, uh, Satan is doing what he's been doing since the dawn of time, exploiting the nakedness of man. The Hebrew word there for subtle in Genesis 3.1, when you translate it, speaks to the exploitation of nakedness, okay? In the sin of pornography, Satan is plagiarizing the truth that is the sacramentality of our bodies. What does John 8, 44 remind us? <laughs> that Satan is the father of all lies, and he does not want us to see that the sexual urge is necessary for that more authentic love to develop. He wants eros to remain autonomous. He does not want to see that unity and distinction, okay? That distinction and unity, no. He wants us to see that erotic love, that eros, as the end in of itself, not as a means to an end. And he is polluting our minds to think that way. So this, again, is why we need to roll up our sleeves and better understand theology of the body. You know, it's interesting. St. John Paul, too, taught that the body and erotic love have a prophetic meaning. He liked to use that phrase, the body speaks a particular language. And the passionate union of spouses imbued by God with generative, creative power, John Paul II would say, the body proclaims a great mystery, a mystery that has us going back to the Trinity, right? That aforementioned reciprocity of love, love given, love received, love shared. But again, <laughs> wherever prophets are sent to proclaim truth, what do we discover? False prophets inevitably appear with cunning schemes to distort that truth and ultimately 
deceive God's people. And rightfully so. Christopher West on this note says, pornographers are false prophets. And our failure, my dear friends, as God's people to see the true theological meaning of the body and erotic love is a measure, we can say, of their success. If we find it difficult or, or even impossible to see the mystery of God revealed in and through the human body and human sexuality, it very well may be because we have been, as Christopher West says, evangelized by the likes of a Hugh Hefner and Larry Flint, as opposed to evangelized by the words of John Paul II, St. John Paul II, and Benedict XVI. This is why our culture, as both popes have insisted, is in desperate need of a new evangelization, huh? of a new evangelization. Now, what is the new evangelization? I know I have touched upon this before, and just by way of a snapshot, maybe we can reflect upon this a little bit because it is so important for us to understand the meaning and the relationship between the new evangelization and theology of the body. Maybe it would be best for us to turn to an address to the American bishops uh, St. John Paul II gave in 1998, where he said, the new evangelization involves a vital effort to come to a deeper understanding of the mysteries of faith and to find meaningful language with which to convince our contemporary that they are called to newness of life through God's love. Okay? The new evangelization is taking what is so incomprehensible and making it comprehensible. Back in 1983, John Paul II spoke to the new evangelization in this way. It must be new in order, methods, and expression, okay? Constantly awaking the heart to understand the faith in a way that would draw them deeper into a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. I personally uh, like the word imagination in this context. I think we need to evangelize the imagination. I believe it is very important in our evangelization and catechesis to lead with beauty, because beauty captivates the heart, and Christ is the incarnation of beauty. So we need to think about how we can use images, and maybe how we can utilize things like uh, drama, the theater, uh, communicating the richness and the boldness of what Jesus Christ proclaimed so as to evangelize the heart. Evangelizing the imagination goes a long, long way as it speaks to the new evangelization. That being said, to Theology of the Body, uh, it is the task of sharing with modern men and women the unsearchable riches of Christ and of making known the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And as uh, John Paul II once observed, God comes to us in the things we know best and can verify most easily, the things of our everyday life apart from which we cannot understand ourselves. And what do we know better? What can we verify more easily? What is more everyday than the experience of embodiment? This is where God meets us, in the flesh. And this is where we must meet the world in the new evangelization. Huh? This is where... John Paul II and many commentaries have spoken to this language of incarnating the gospel, huh? If we were to go back to that address in 1998, John Paul II defined the basic task of evangelization as the church's effort to proclaim to all men and women 
that God loves them, that he has given himself for them in Christ Jesus, and that he invites them to an unending life of happiness. This basic message is in itself good news. But my friends, it needs to be incarnated if men and women are to find their link with it, okay? Because this message was and is incarnated in Jesus Christ. You know, there's a tendency, uh, I know I've encountered it, uh, Christopher West talks about it, and many of you, I know faithful listeners, have probably encountered this. Uh, we get the question posed to us, you know, what does some man who lived 2,000 years ago have to do with me? What does some man who lived 2,000 years ago have to tell me about my sexuality? We can say Jesus is the answer till we are blue in the face. But unless people are first in touch with the question, we remain on the level of abstraction, okay? Now, this is why here on the radio, we do our best to encourage, okay? Just not an understanding of theology of the body, but in integration of it, so that we might, in the living out of uh, purity and the virtues that embody what it means to live in God, we might invite our brothers and sisters in Christ into the conversation where they are asking uh, new questions, and as I always say, new questions that lead to new beginnings. So it is, my friends, we have this task of grounding the gospel in the body, um, and when we do so, we see that it is the antidote to abstraction. It roots us in what is truly human, in the everyday, and by doing so, prepares us to receive what is truly divine. In other words, it puts us squarely in touch with the human question, that which is closest to all of us, thus opening our hearts to the divine answer. In some sense, embodiment is the human question. What does it mean to be man? What does it mean to be a woman? There are no more important questions for men and women to ask. And uh, again, what we are made to see is that being a body is inherently behind that question. I mean, how important is it for us to be well-versed in theology of the body so as to be able to have that necessary conversation? I mean, everywhere you turn, uh, there's another news report about uh, sex trafficking, uh, pornography, adultery. Everywhere you turn, there is a perversion of our sexual identity. Should we not engage the question? Engage the question in reverence, uh, humility, in that uh, personal accompaniment that Pope Francis likes to talk about, giving the person the experience of being listened to, and in giving that person the experience of being listened to, to really enter into that conversation for what it is, meeting them where they're at. For any one person who struggles with how to articulate their sexuality, is it not necessary for us to be more versed in what we're talking about now so as to be able to enter into that dialogue? Here, my friends, I could not encourage enough just not to reflect upon the stuff we talk about here on the radio program, but really get into those books that we have been reflecting upon. Just not the love that satisfies, that certainly is foundational, but the other works we have touched upon. Edward Sree's uh, Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, uh, some of Christopher West's other books, uh, John Paul II's Love and Responsibility, which uh, Edward Sree reflects upon. These are all very important things, all of which must rest in that, that prayer that guides and shapes how we begin to see these things for what they are in the truth that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. All that being said, I want to close with a quote from John Paul II. It is one of my favorites. I put it into my dissertation, 
I think this really just puts into focus just not what theology of the body is about, but why. Why we need to take up the marvel, the wonder, and the beauty that is this towering theme and topic of love. He says this. Again, this is St. John Paul II. Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. This is why Christ the Redeemer fully reveals man to himself, because his body given up for us reveals the truth about incarnate love, that eros points to agape. We are given the grace in baptism to share in the wonder and the beauty of that love given, love received, love shared. And there is no greater gift for us to not only abide in this love, but at the same time, give glory to God by sharing this love with others. Because it is in doing that that we really do enter more deeply into the new evangelization. Because if there is any soundbite that all of the last three popes have given when it comes to the new evangelization, it is, yes, love, but it is the personal encounter with love, right? This is why Pope Francis speaks to the culture of encounter when he talks about the new evangelization in the joy of the gospel. So this must be our first task, to enter into love so as to exist for love, because we were uh, created from love for love. And apart from love, our life loses its sense of direction. Um, amen to that. So why don't we close with a word of prayer, a glory be. And I want to give a shout out to one saint, be the venerable, as we close with a glory be. Because as I noted a few days ago, a man who 1,400 years ago, uh, was a saint for the new evangelization and how he went about evangelizing. So uh, let us pray the glory be. I'm united to St. Bede the Venerable and asking for his intercession as we embark upon this great task to love for the new evangelization in light of theology of the body. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.